Hi, and welcome to Switchboard. I'm Alfie Barishi, and this week we're taking a look at Veganuary. 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 The number of people following a vegan diet has more than doubled in the last year. Veganism. The way of living that abstains from the use or consumption of animal products is right now more popular than ever before. But with that popularity comes controversy. How do you, but how do you morally justify it? So it's I not, don't need to morally justify it. Of course, if there's a victim involved, you why do. Why do you claim that I need to morally justify it? You're listening to Switchboard. Welcome to the episode. What is Veganuary? Veganuary started out as a UK non-profit organisation aiming to promote and educate people about a vegan lifestyle. The campaign centres around encouraging people to adopt a vegan lifestyle for the month of January. And that means no meat, no eggs, no milk and no honey. No animal products whatsoever. Since the event began in 2014, participation has more than doubled each year, with over 400,000 Brits taking part this year alone. I sat down with Jess Molyneux, a participant in Veganuary, to discuss her experiences with it. So I'm here with Jess Molyneux, who is a student at Jesus College studying English. Hi, Jess. Hi. Jess has taken up Veganuary for the month. So could you just start off by telling me a little bit about yourself? So, yeah, as you said, I study English. I'm in second year. I'm living in Cambridge. I'm from Manchester. I've been vegetarian for a year. So it was my New Year's resolution last year and been thinking a lot since I got to uni about sustainable lifestyle changes. So Veganuary is one of the things that I've worked into that. So you bring up a really interesting point about sustainability there. So what was it that sort of convinced you that veganism would be a sustainable lifestyle? Um, So obviously I'd heard a lot about vegetarianism and how cutting meat makes a big impact. And then when I was, I was actually writing an article for Varsity about um, going vegetarian and I came across a graph in some kind of UN report that I was just scanning and the the bars for beef and dairy were so much higher than all the other like chicken and pork and eggs combined. The UN report which Jess refers found that quote animal products both meat and dairy in general require more resources and cause higher emissions than plant-based alternatives. It also concluded by saying that a substantial reduction in agricultural greenhouse gas emissions quote would only be possible with a substantial worldwide diet change away from animal products. So for the listeners who may be vegetarian or who may be meat eaters, could you just talk a little bit about the dietary changes that you had to make, whether it was drastic or whether you actually enjoyed it? Okay, so I found that the biggest change was probably that since going veggie, the protein source I'd relied on most was cheese. And so cutting that was difficult. So I've introduced more like nuts are a big staple and nut butters and I've tried things that I wouldn't otherwise have done things like different seeds and chickpeas and beans I've always liked and eaten plenty of but as the main part of a meal that's something that's changed. Last week I sat down with Galia Shamron to discuss what the university's vegan society has been doing to promote Veganuary. I'm here with Gallia, uh, who is the Vice President of the Cambridge University Vegan Society. Hi, Gallia. Hi. Could you just start off by telling me a little bit about the Vegan Society and your role within it? So we are a student-led society 
and we hold like a lot of different events and it's kind of for all different students you don't have to be vegan to come to our events even though everybody on the committee is vegan and my role within the society is I'm specifically vice president of PR and more of the social media and activism kind of stuff so I kind of just make sure that our posts get put up on time, that we're advertising properly, that our activism events are kind of being scheduled and things like that. Was it like a particular moment or particular incident that compelled you to become vegan? Um, yeah, actually, really interestingly, I was in Israel, kind of just walking down the street with my family, and I saw an animal rights march walk past, and my dad was on the phone to one of his friends who was vegan, and we were talking, and she was like, where are you? And I told her I was at an animal rights march, and it was really cool, and she said, well, why aren't you vegan then? If you think it's really cool and you love animals, why are you still eating meat? And I was like, oh, I gave all these excuses, but then after that, I kept thinking about it, and I was like, oh, she's right, actually. <laughs> According to recent statistics, more than 200 million animals are killed for food around the world every single day, and that's just on land. That comes out to around 72 billion land animals killed for food every single year. So most people claim that they are pro-animal welfare. Um, some people have argued that as humans, it's actual state to eat meat, and that we've been using cows and chickens for milk and eggs for centuries. So. Why should we change now? What would you say to those people? So I find that argument quite interesting, actually. It's one of the like many arguments you get against veganism because I think the argument that this is always how we've done it, so this is how we should keep doing it, is kind of flawed because you could say that about lots of different things, about women's rights or like other different like minority rights. And so just because that's the way we've always done it doesn't mean it's right. Mm -hmm. And I think specifically with veganism, you could say that, oh, like when we were like Neanderthals or like that kind of thing, we used to eat this way. Our bodies have changed and there are so many other options now and we know better. So kind of say, oh, well, we should go back to how we were living. Okay, so maybe we should go back to having no electricity or having none of these other things that we enrich our lives with. So today's January 29th, so coming to an end of the month. Do you feel better in your body after changing to a vegan lifestyle so i feel pretty similar and that's probably because i was also eating vegan things i feel good in the sense that i've done a kind of good ethical thing and so that's translating into a kind of my body must feel better and i've noticed a bit of a change in gym performance i guess because it's made me put an emphasis on protein that i hadn't before because i'm very aware that i might not be getting it as well as considering the health benefits of veganism Last week, I sat down with Dr. Shailisha Fennell to discuss the feasibility of vegan lifestyles in developing countries. So I'm here with Dr. Shailisha Fennell, uh, who is a member of the Cambridge Forum for Sustainability and the Environment and is a fellow of Jesus College. Hi. Hi. Could you just start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and as a lecturer in development studies, I'd also like to know what are the areas you're particularly interested in? So uh, I'm a lecturer in development studies and I'm based in the Department of Land Economy and my particular uh, area of research is rural urban transitions and I try to understand what happens when groups move from rural to urban areas in terms of food security and rural livelihoods and poverty and I've been researching Asia and Africa for about a quarter of a century now. 
two years ago, I was part of a successful bid for the Global Challenges Research Fund, which is looking at transforming agriculture for sustainable food supplies. And uh, we're two years into the program, so we're looking at both Asia and Africa now. So it's a, a bigger project. We're trying to understand the parts of the world that, that did not benefit from the Green Revolution. So the Green Revolution occurred in the 60s, it ran through the 70s and 80s, it was based on high-yielding varieties. So hybrid varieties which were bred for preferable characteristics, so often short-stalked plants with bigger heads of grain. And this was very beneficial in reducing world poverty, particularly in the lower income countries. But it required huge inputs in water, pesticides, fertilizer. So the less well-endowed agricultural regions of the world didn't benefit. And so this current project is trying to understand how we would create sustainable agriculture in the less well-endowed natural resource world in the context of an acute climate change crisis is very pressing as you mentioned and um that brings me on to my next question which is obviously this episode that we're doing is about veganism um and i just wanted to ask your opinion about whether you think that vegan lifestyles would be sustainable in developing countries so that's a really interesting question if we look at the world map of vegetarianism before we get to veganism um there are large variations and even in a country like india it's only 30 percent of people who are recorded as vegetarian so in low-income countries if you look at vegetarians is it because they don't choose to eat meat or do they have not enough income to eat meat and if I go from India to China, uh, where China has actually had a major poverty reduction, it's a meat-eating country, but the amount of meat people are eating has increased hugely. So from about maybe under like 10 kilograms average before uh, the 1940s, 50s, the predictions of the International Food Policy Research Institute is in the order of 70 kilos per average person in the year. That's huge amounts. So we're not sure whether we are absolutely correct, even in terms of vegetarianism. So that's the first point. If we look at veganism, veganism is something that has emerged in high-income countries as a response to concerns about climate, to other kinds of moral concerns. And it would be hard to answer whether veganism would work in developing countries because there isn't a history of not eating any animal products. So people would typically have milk. There might be some people who don't have eggs. So it's not a movement if to, if you want to think about what veganism does in developing countries. But if you're asking if it's sustainable, then in a way what you're saying is, well, what's the value of veganism from the point of view of climate sustainability? It's that you move away from using land to produce meat. You're using it to grow crops. And then you might also say for those who want to eat meat, they would use artificial cultivation of meat so you'd go off the land and that is true if we did not produce meat products and we just grew plant-based products we would certainly reduce the land use that we've got in terms of covered by agriculture and that would have positive impacts in terms of growing more forests and reducing the impact of, of GHGs but if we think about what's happening in the developing world where would they do this? I mean, what's the nature of land use in those countries? There's a lot of gray areas that we will need to investigate before I could even begin to give you an answer whether veganism, one, is going to be largely present as a consumer choice, and second, the implications. But it certainly has huge possibility. According to a study carried out by John Robbins in 1987, 
one-sixth of an acre of land would be needed to feed a vegan for a year. In contrast, a vegetarian lifestyle requires three times more land than a vegan lifestyle, and meat-eating lifestyles require 18 times more land than a vegan lifestyle. In addition, researchers at the University of Oxford have found that cutting meat and dairy products from your diet could reduce an individual's carbon footprint from food by up to 73%. So obviously this episode isn't just about veganism, it's also about veganuary specifically. So can you just talk to me a little bit about the kinds of things that the Vegan Society has been doing to promote veganuary within Cambridge? So as a vegan society, we have vegan intro meetings, we have a vegan intro officer, and they're specifically for people that are trying to transition to veganism and need tips. So we have had one this veganuary, which is very cool. And we also had a veganuary potluck and we do potlucks throughout the year. But this one specifically is there if anybody had any questions and to feel that there was a space where they could come and say, I actually don't really know what I'm doing, but I want to be vegan and I want to try more vegan foods and we kind of provided and lots of other people that bring food food that they could think oh I didn't know this was vegan and that kind of thing right so it's all about sort of education yeah and education I think with meeting people where they're at and like with kindness not shaming people into being vegan just saying hey look you might not have realized this like if you need any help we're here to help you that's a really interesting point you bring up because I'd like to talk a little bit about activism. So obviously there's a lot of debate about the most effective forms of activism. And you said there that you think that a more positive approach to activism is maybe more effective. Could you maybe speak a little bit to that? Yeah, of course. This is definitely something that I try and promote within my own activism and the society as a whole try and promote that we don't think it's effective to shame people into going vegan and to embarrass people because people just don't like being embarrassed. And I think if you kind of meet people where they're at and like show people that they don't actually need to make that many changes and that it's accessible and you like treat them with kindness and show them, I recognize where you're at, like I've been there before. And then people think about it themselves and actually want to be doing it rather than feel like they have to do it. Yeah, it's interesting because couldn't you say that by ignoring the more unpleasant aspects about animal agriculture when you're promoting veganism, that you're not giving people the entire vegan message? I don't know if it, you should be completely positive. I don't think that's quite what I meant. But if you like barrage people with these negative videos and show them all this kind of like, like killing and things like that, which does happen and is a reason to go vegan. But if you kind of start with that, then sometimes it can turn people off it. You should give people the option to be watching these videos and you should be educating people on what goes on. So there's been a lot of publicity surrounding vegan options for popular restaurants. So KFC have the infamous vegan burger. There's like the Greg steak bacon, stuff like that. So I was just wondering if you tried any of those and what you thought of them. So I haven't tried the KFC vegan burger. I had tried the Greg's vegan sausage roll before Veganuary and it's better than a real sausage roll because a sausage roll isn't real meat anyway. I think because I'm not really one for like meat substitutes, I'm fine with just replacing it with different protein sources. I went to a vegetarian restaurant in London and they had this chicken in a stir fry and it did just taste exactly the same and that was quite cool. You're a student at Jesus College, so... Do you want to talk a little bit about how your college gives vegan options to students? Yeah, so Jesus 
has quite good kitchen facilities and things it's quite easy to cook for yourself as a vegan well obviously quite near Sainsbury's but in terms of calf and hall there's actually a real push from the catering team and managers themselves to make calf more vegan and vegetarian so there's a vegan option every day at both meals that's different we have like a salad bar that you can always get a good vegan meal from I've been really impressed by the vegan provision like it's never been oh the vegan option looks a bit grim they're quite creative with what they do with it and the vegan option is always cheaper so it does feel like you're being rewarded even formals I did get a fruit salad the other week for dessert but apart from that they're usually pretty good a study published in the journal Science in 2018 concluded that the single biggest way to reduce your environmental impact on the planet is to avoid meat and dairy products. And with animal agriculture producing more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire transportation industry combined, it seems like the scientific consensus on veganism is clear. But are there any drawbacks? I put the question to Dr Fennell. It's interesting to note that being vegan doesn't necessarily always mean sustainable. So I know, for example, that avocados have quite a significant environmental impact as to almonds as well. So just in terms of what foods might be more preferable in terms of their environmental impact, are there any that particularly stand out in terms of their nutritional benefit and environmental benefit? So I think there's something that we need to think about, whether we can continue to be expecting that all the foods we want to eat from across the world, even if they are plant-based, are going to be available to us. If the intention is to get as much protein and carbs and micronutrients as we need, then we need to investigate whether that's not possible from vegetables that are available closer to home. And again, you can make a choice. So if you want to eat an avocado and it means that it's being transported from another country and so much water is being used and particular communities growing it, then maybe it's a greater responsibility when you consume an avocado than if you decide, well, what I really need is good cholesterol and can I find it in a nut-based diet and are those nuts available within East Anglia? since we're in Cambridge. And I think that's a choice most of us have to make. I mean, what is good about veganism is, in a way, people are saying, well, what should I eat and what should I not eat? I think this might be the time, particularly if you think about the university community, to think about, well, what are the micronutrients I need? It's interesting, isn't it? Because now there's all these alternative to meats and you can have a vegetarian burger or you can grow alternatives. One of the ones I find very interesting, and that is something actually consumed a lot in India, where I originally come from, is jackfruit. So jackfruit is eaten in certain periods in India when meat is not eaten. So particular times of the year when maybe Hindus think they can't eat meat for some purposes. Similarly in Ethiopia, throughout the Lent period, because of the particular Orthodox church they have, they don't eat meat. Or Buddhists in other parts of the world. So how do people in local environments get the combination of nutrients they need? And can we not fashion those here? I mean, it seems to be the easy thing, well, avocado's good, we'll get it from somewhere else. But we need to think about, can we grow them closer to home? And if not, can we have an alternative that gives us the same benefit? So obviously veganism can be quite a beneficial lifestyle in some aspects, um, particularly to athletes. But it's also potentially a way to mask eating disorders. So maybe could you speak a little bit to the issues surrounding those things? Yeah, I think that's something that's really important to remember whenever we're having conversations about it, because... For anyone who's like had any kind of disordered eating, like absolute rules are quite dangerous. And so I just think we need to remember when looking at friends who are going vegan, just making sure that we're aware of the reasons why they're doing that. And I think it's very easy to say, oh, no, I can't have that cake because I'm vegan and no one really takes any notice. And I know people who have 
gone vegan in exam term and because of a mix of stress and bad college provision for veganism have like lost a lot of weight so it's just something to keep in mind Okay, so while there is a strong environmental incentive to switch to plant-based diets, mm-hmm. I want to ask you, is there a place for moderation? Like, so say I've spoken to some people who said that we should just have meat on special occasions. Would that for you be acceptable? Personally, I'm like a big advocator of just doing what you can. And I think that even just cutting meat out one day a week or cutting as much as you feel you're okay with actually helps so, so much. I'm not sure of the exact statistics, but I know that cutting meat down on just one day can have such an impact. And I think also it makes that more accessible to people who might not be vegan or might not be veggie. And actually just cutting down on one day is a step for them to say, okay, this is actually something I can do. And I think that promoting that aspect of sustainability and veganism will help more people and actually will help the planet more. According to recent research, more than 795 million people in the world currently do not have enough food to live healthy, active lifestyles. That's about one in nine people on Earth. And in a world where 82% of starving children live in countries where food goes towards feeding livestock, I wanted to ask Dr Fennell, about how we can go about more efficiently allocating crops to impoverished countries. Okay, so the majority of crops, including those grown in countries where people are often starving, they're often fed to livestock to feed affluent nations. So as well as addressing the issue of low yields in countries such as we're talking about, how is it that we could go about reallocating the crops that we already have but feed to animals to those in countries where they don't have enough food? I think you raise a very important question, that of converting crop into feed. There's also the question of the kind of crop and where it's being sold between rural and urban. So I'll address your feed question, and then if I may, I'll move on to the rural-urban shift. So one of the major challenges is being part of the global value chain. So, for example, soybean in Brazil is exported in large amounts to China. Now, China already has soy. I mean, it's a country that produces soy sauce in the whole of the East Asian region. But of course, all that soybean is going to feed animals in China or to support food production elsewhere for animals and meat to go to China. So we have a huge amount of plant-based production, which is going into the production of meat. And that is challenging. Or it's being exported to high-income countries like lettuce grown in Ghana, which comes onto our supermarket shelves. So there are two questions. One is, can you improve the income of farmers in low-income countries so they can buy better food? Now, it might be they continue to sell this, but they get better prices. That's one of the features that we could do. And so we've got this whole discussion about fair trade or improved performance. One of my examples that I use often in teaching is the quinoa revolution, where everyone in Britain thinks quinoa is a superfood and it's really good for you. But what happened was with the production of quinoa, which initially was the plant that small farmers in South America grew for their own consumption, they found a huge global market. So quite rightly, they started selling. The price of quinoa went up by over a dollar per unit of growth. So this helped farmers to increase their incomes, send their children to school. But as it became an attractive crop, the bigger farmers in those countries started growing it. They were able to access global markets faster. They had better irrigation. They got better returns. The small farmers got pushed out. So often it's not that 
Small farmers can't be part of the value chain, but they need safeguards to make it possible for them. So I think it's also about how in the global value chain we think about what we're consuming and the impact it has. And people always shake their heads and say, that makes my Saturday morning shopping very difficult. I agree. And so we've got to think about how much are we willing to think about our Saturday morning shopping if we're going to make these choices. The other thing that's really interesting is farmers might grow a crop like millets that we've been looking at, which is a hardy shrub similar to quinoa, which grows without necessarily irrigation. It's rain-fed, is able to withstand high temperatures. But millets is a super diet. We like it because it's got low glycemic index, so it doesn't make you fat. It reduces, therefore, obesity and heart disease. But also it's gluten-free, so it's really super healthy. Again, what you find in, for example, the work we're doing in Gambia or in Ethiopia, farmers sell these to the urban market because the middle class in these countries is like any other global middle class wants to be healthy. But in return, they use the income to buy polished rice or very refined wheat, which basically are sugar dumps. So what you've got is income generation, but the nutrition of the farming community is actually becoming worse. That actually brings me on to my next question, which is obviously Western countries have disproportionately contributed towards carbon emissions over the years. And then you have these developing countries who haven't had the chance to go through industrial revolutions. So is it fair for Western countries to say that developing countries shouldn't go through their own industrial revolutions? Absolutely not. I don't think they have that authority. And in fact, the counter is really important to address. If you are going to have a global compact for reducing emissions, unless the five and a half odd billion people who are living in the global south agree, the remaining four odd billion living in the global north are not going to be able to make it work. So for starters, it's not going to work if you're telling them you can't industrialize. But is it possible for underdeveloped countries to have a quote-unquote green revolution? So is there any way that we could give them the infrastructure that they deserve and require, but do it in an environmentally sustainable way? Or do they need to have a fossil fuel revolution like we've had? I think that is a really thought-provoking question. So the Green Revolution, as it is in terms of a plant-based hybrid, does not require you to use fossil-based energies. So one of the most important aspects in terms of managing, and I wouldn't call it a Green Revolution, it's called a sustainable agricultural revolution, is what's the source of the energy to pump up your water? You can use solar-based, you can use wind-based, you can use microhydel. So, for example, what you're saying there is let's look at the water footprint of these countries. And if you're doing it that way, then the countries in the global south are growing the food, which is 90% water, that we're consuming in the high-income world. So we are demanding a lot more of their resources. And so if they went green, that would, of course, hugely affect what we consume. Are we willing to pay a higher price for it? Are we willing to say when we go to the supermarket, that's the cost of the water that's pumped out of that country, which I'm consuming? So that would make the sustainable agricultural revolution in low-income countries, and it, it's absolutely necessary. You cannot have coal-based energy, which is where 80 to 90% of your GHGs are already being pumped out in agriculture, even before you grow the crop. But the corollary must be that if you're using greening as a way to grow, then that must be recognized in high-income countries and an appropriate price and value chain needs to be developed as an alternative. So you've had this lifestyle for a month now and you're coming to the end of it. Do you think that veganism is something you're gonna continue with? Yeah, I do like saying I'm a vegan. I found like eating out, I'm happy to just go vegan. It 
helps me make a decision on a menu it's quite easy at formal I've quite liked adapting to the choices that I've made I like what I eat now and I've discovered some quite new fun foods and things and I think that's always going to be developing as like veganism becomes bigger. Stem and Glory the restaurant on King Street has really good vegan BLT and vegan cakes. If you had say like 30 seconds to pitch veganism what would you say? Okay so I would pitch veganism as something that is super easy, something that is actually really fun. It gets you creative about food and about the way you cook food and I would say it's something that makes you feel healthier, feel more energized and especially with the climate crisis that is so prevalent at the moment and has been in the past but kind of more recently as well you actually feel like you are making a difference in your personal life and that you specifically can make a difference. What do you think the main thing that can be done to address the climate crisis is then? Obviously, there are a lot of contributing factors, but if you just had to pick the main one. So we've talked about food security, which is a real challenge for low-income resource environments. We need to address that. We need to address food waste and the way we manage eutrophication. The pesticides, the most dangerous thing about it is it flows into our rivers and seas and creates terrible blooms of algal growth and destroys our environment. And then there's a mitigation adaptation that we're already talking about. So take those four together. And within that, veganism clearly has a role. And it is very important because it's young people, they're talking about this, just like Greta Thunberg is talking about, there is you know, climate extinction. You pull those things together, we probably have a much more powerful basis. And the good thing is young people, it's, it's you know, they who are making that noise and they are the future, so that is very important. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thanks to Galia Shomron, Jess Molyneux and Dr Shaila Jafenel for taking part in this week's episode. If you visit the Varsity website at varsity.co.uk, you'll be able to find an article to accompany this week's episode, as well as a link to all the articles and resources cited within it. Be sure to tune in next week and don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's a massive help to the show and we'd really appreciate it. I'm Alfie Barishi and you've been listening to Switchboard, the official Varsity podcast. Until next time.